Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. The following story contains material that may be offensive and emotionally disturbing, and may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. This is An Eye for a Killing, the true story of Scotland's most notorious serial killers, Burke and Hare. Episode 2, The Lost Girl. It's Christmas Eve, 1828. It's night. It's cold in the streets of Edinburgh. But a crowd of people has braved the winter weather to stand outside the court buildings in the heart of the city's old town. Inside, a murder trial has been underway since this morning. It will continue all through the night. In the High Court, William Burke and his partner Helen McDougall are accused of the murder of an old woman, Maggie Doherty, whose body was then stuffed in a box and sold to an anatomist. On the packed public benches, people crane their necks to see a small man in the witness box. His name is William Hare. Although complicit in the murder, He has turned King's evidence and will not be charged with the crime. His aim now is to protect his public image at all costs and send William Burke and Helen McDougall to the gallows. Hare is cross-examined by the eminent defence lawyer, Henry Coburn, who represents McDougall. The words come from the trial transcript of 1828. Now, sir, I'm going to ask this question, which you need not answer unless you please. Was this of the old woman the first murder that you have been concerned in? Uh, Do you choose to answer or not to answer? Not to answer. Uh, I'm going to ask another question, which you need not answer unless you like. Was there murder committed in your house last October? Do you choose to answer that or not? Not answer that. You mentioned, (coughs) sir, that Burke in the dock here came and told you that he had got a shot for the doctors and that you understood that that meant that he intended to murder that woman or somebody. That was his meaning. How did you understand that? Was that... A common phrase amongst you. Amongst him? Not amongst him, Mr Hare, but you. Had you ever heard that phrase used by Burke before? Yes. You understand by that that he was going to murder somebody? He said this many a time when he had no thought of murdering. Then how did you understand that he was going to murder? He told me. Did he tell you whom he meant to murder? Yes. He told you so? Yes. Now, sir, tell us when it was that he told you he meant to murder that old woman. In the forepart of the day. Did you suspect that mischief would be done that night? Only from his words. When was it that you anticipated mischief that night? When he was on top of her. 
The packed public benches react with revulsion to the admission by William Hare that he knew well beforehand that Maggie Doherty was going to be murdered, but did nothing about it. What the crowd don't know, but the prosecutors do, is that we are not dealing with one random murder here, or even two or three. William Hare, in return for immunity, has told them in great detail about a horrific killing spree for money lasting ten months, which only ended with the murder of Maggie Doherty. In all, he has confessed that he and William Burke have murdered 16 people. Mr Hare, how long do you say you have been in Edinburgh? About ten years. What have you been employed at all that time? Boatman and labourer uh, on the canal. Have you been employed in any other way? I had a horse and cart selling fish. Any other way? No. Have you been engaged in supplying bodies to the doctors? Yes. Did you assist in taking the body of the old woman to Surgeon's Square here in Edinburgh? Yes. Were you ever concerned in carrying any other body to any surgeon? I never was, uh, just the one I mentioned. You were concerned in furnishing that one? No, but I saw them doing it. Here, the most senior judge on the bench, the Right Honourable David Boyle, intervenes, telling Hare it is his duty as Lord Justice Clerk to inform him that he is not bound to make any answer to questions which might incriminate himself. Henry Coburn resumes his cross-examination. I'm going to put a very few questions to you, and you are entitled to refuse to answer them. Now, Hare. You told me that you had been concerned in furnishing one subject to the doctors and you had seen them doing it. How often have you seen them doing it? Do you decline to answer that question? Yes. Was this of the old woman the first murder that you have been concerned in? Do you choose to answer or not to answer? Not the answer. Was there murder committed in your house in the last October? Do you choose to answer that or not? Not answer that. On the press benches, the reporters write furiously in their notebooks. One journalist will play a prominent role in this case. He works for the Edinburgh Current newspaper. I have chosen to call him Thomas Galbraith. He is a keen observer. In two weeks from now, he will be led into Burke's prison cell where he will learn the full, appalling truth. That not only was one woman murdered, but in total, 16 people were killed in less than a year and their bodies sold for cash to a superstar anatomist, Dr Robert Knox. There were 17 in all. 
The first one wasn't murder. William Burke, canal labourer, cobbler, mass killer, sits shackled and restrained in his cell. He is small but powerful. His eyes flick around the cell as he speaks. But then he looks directly into Galbraith's eyes. It's a look he can hold. He's good at it. He's practised. He is speaking directly to you. It makes you feel on a good night his charm, a bad night his power. He was an old soldier. Donald, I think. He was Hare's lodger, and he died in his bed, owing Hare rent. Walk through the grass market in Edinburgh's old town, and high above the cobbled streets, Edinburgh Castle stands out against a big cold sky. At the end of the grass market is what's called the Westport, and what was once Tanner's Close. Close, the Scottish word for an alleyway. Here once stood William Hare's lodging house where the murders took place. Lisa Rosner, historian and author of The Anatomy Murders. The rooms themselves would have been fairly small. They would have looked like hostels, but people would have brought their own bedrolls. I mean, maybe straw would have been provided. There wouldn't be cooking facilities, and it would be unusual to have a fire. So that you can imagine that, especially during the harvest, during the spring and summer and fall months, when there was a great influx of agricultural laborers, the rooms would be just filled in. It would have looked like a student hostel where everybody is, is bringing their bedrolls, and it possibly would have been very friendly and sociable with people sharing drinks. So that would have been what a lodging house was like, and people would have stayed for a night or a couple of nights, and then they would have moved on. William Hare runs a lodging house with his wife, Margaret, or Lucky, as she's known. William Burke and his common-law wife, Helen McDougall, are tenants. For them, like many in this part of the city, life is tough. Scraping a living is hard. But a death will change all that. In the prison cell, the current reporter Galbraith breaks the silence. The old soldier, Mr Burke. If you spit it out, it'll help. Before I die? Before you face God. <laughs> That'll be some maiden. <laughs> if I tell you, I need you to do something for me. I want you to look out for my Helen. She is nothing. So you'll speak if you help. All right. We didn't kill the old soldier. I didn't even know him. He was Hare's lodger and he died owing rent. Hare was rattled by that. It was due to pay me back when his pension came. The old bastards died. How much? Four pounds. Hmm. We were good to him. Letting him stay till he got the money. I need your help. I don't know four pounds. No. We could sell them to the doctors. You could? I hear they take them. 
but he's in his coffin. The parish put him in it, and they're coming in the morning to bury him. That's it, that? No. Listen. We could take him out of the coffin. When we sell him, I'll split the money. But they'll know the coffin's empty. There's Tanner's bark in the yard next door. If we put the bark in the coffin, they'll never know. Yeah. Are you in? I'm being careful. Don't splinter. And chain. Keep it like I... In the name of... What did you expect? He's dead. Come on. Let me get him out. Oh, he's heavy. We put him under the bed. Got bark from the tanner's yard. Packed the coffin with it. Piled in blankets. And tacked the lid down again. We went in a day up to the university. But they told us the anatomy professor, Dr. Monroe, wasn't around. We were advised to try Dr. Knox's in Surgeon Square. We carried the body up there at night. Who we ask for? I'll do the talking. I'll ask where we got it. I said, leave it to me. Can I help you? Uh, good evening, sir. We can help you. Uh, we've got something for you. Come inside. Lay the sack there and open it up. Take the shirt off. Dr. Knox will want to see the whole torso. Not seen you before, have I? No, sir. But I recognise you. You're Patterson. You live around the Westport, don't you? I'll keep to the task in hand. We were uh, recommended to come here. We're new to this. Your name's on? What are you wanting that for? Sir. The records. John. William. John and William what? <laughs> That'll do you, sir. Uh, Dr Knox. He was a showy man with a bad eye. He was dressed fancy, as if he was rushing out for his dinner. What have we here, then? <sighs> He's old. But he'll do. Very good. Pay them, Patterson. Seven pounds and ten shillings. Good evening. Seven and ten shillings. Thank you, sir. Good night. Well, good night to you, John. Remember, if you have any other subjects to dispose of, we'll be glad to see you. Are you all right for that split? I'm all right. 
They never asked a thing. But you shouldn't have given your name. He caught me. I wasn't ready. It's more than a month's wages. Look at it. <laughs> and they want more. Let's get a drink. <laughs> I can see them, even though it's night, on that first walk down from Surgeon Square towards the Cowgate and the Grass Market. Down the hill they go. William Burke and William Hare. Pockets jingling. Good job done. There's a way of prayer or meditating that when a word in a text stands out, you go back to it, prayerfully, and meditate on it in your heart. Conducting research for this series, going back through original trial transcripts and eyewitness accounts, I come across a word that instantly tolls inside me, like a slow bell. The word comes from an eyewitness almost 200 years ago. The witness tells the High Court in William Burke's trial that the time of day that something happened was about darkening. It was that word, darkening, as a noun. Darkening. A word that fits with what I feel as I follow William Burke and William Hare down from 10 Surgeon Square to the grass market. They've made a fair exchange. A spare dead body. A man who was apparently friendless and owed money. Now they have more money in their pockets than they've seen in months. They step down through the darkening, into the cow gate, the thoroughfare snaking its way towards the grass market, where the warm, bright lights of an inn beckon. And there William Burke and William Hare are happy. Job done. Debt redeemed. Cash in pocket, happy days ahead. For them, maybe. But not for those about to die. And back up in Surgeon Square, what of Dr Robert Knox, who so carelessly bought the body of Donald the old soldier? What of him and the world of anatomy? Lisa Rosner. He was a superstar of a sort. His main interest, uh, this is an important thing, had not been and was never in clinical surgery. So he's sometimes described as a great surgeon, but that's misleading. What he considered himself to be was a comparative anatomist. And he was tremendously flamboyant in his lectures, and his students loved it. And we have many accounts of it. And it's clear that he had an enormous amount of charisma and could really just pack those students in. For historian Owen Dudley Edwards, author of the book Burke and Hare, Knox's flamboyance has a serious purpose. The whole point about teaching was, teaching was performance. You had to excite your audience. You had to get their involvement in the thing. Now, in order to hold the classes, somebody like Knox, unscrupulously ready to give wonderful descriptions about how operations are carried out, to discuss, as he would do, very effectively, the different types of skeletons he had seen, the different types of races, as he put it, that he had seen from his work in South Africa and elsewhere. Knox himself was 
worth going to see even if you didn't want to become a doctor, particularly when he got on to discussing some of his rivals and telling you stories about them, whether he'd invented them or not, saying about Robert Liston, for example, a great surgeon and his rival, younger than him, oh, that he couldn't afford to get any corpses, and so he stole a large sheep and proceeded to dissect that in front of the students who he'd managed to lure in. Story completely untrue, probably, but of course it would make the rounds and it would help Knox the situation greatly. Knox the star versus the dullard Alexander Monroe at the university, who allegedly used his grandfather's lecture notes for teaching. Whether he did or not, he seems to lack a hunger for work, something that Robert Knox has in abundance. And that hunger means steady business for the resurrectionists, the grave robbers, busy supplying to the doctors. But grave robbing is one thing that William Burke and William Hare never did. Not once. They saw a chance, a gap in the market, and just murdered. That's all you see, Mr. Goodbraith. What do I see? You see me as William Burke the murderer. I'm more than that. Or as Burke and Hare, as if we are one thing. We barely know each other. We know that William Burke is small, about five feet six. He's been a soldier, a labourer, and a navvy building the canals. Where William Hare worked too. Hard, grinding labour in slave-like conditions. So, Mr Burke, the person, tell me about the first murder. His name was Joseph, I think. He was a miller. He had a fever, he was dying. Here and his missus were worried about word getting round that the fever was in the lodging house. How did you do it? He was very ill, lying in bed, and couldn't speak at times. Me and Hare agreed we'd suffocate him. We gave him a drink, but he wasn't drunk. I got a pillow and laid it across his mouth, and Hare lay down on him to keep his arms and legs down. We sold him to the doctor. We got ten pounds. Tell me, how's here getting off with this and I'm not? No evidence. No witnesses. They needed one of you to confess. So, if he hadn't confessed, they couldn't have tried me. It would have been difficult. He's a rat. And thick as shite in a bottle. You sold a dead body, and now you've murdered for the first time. Ten pounds is ten pounds. And the fever was gone from the house. Do you ever think about the people you killed? No. But they've come to me in my dreams. I drown them with drink. William Burke has infested my dreams. It's strange to hear him speak, this mass killer, 
he worked out quickly that if a body has no marks of murder on it, the less trouble it will be to sell it. A very practical murderer. Having him so close at times during the writing of An Eye for a Killing has troubled me. Fully imagining the events of 1828 and being in the living presence of William Burke can be a dark experience. In an effort to shake him off, I've gone out at night from my home to walk the streets of South Edinburgh. Sometimes it works, but one night as I slept, I found myself in a room with four white walls and a single bed. I was pressing down on someone's face, stopping their breath, and this voice was telling me where I was getting it wrong. I looked over my shoulder, and it was William Burke. He said, no, no, here, let me show you. And he took over. He smiled at me as he did it. I woke in a sweat. I have thought about the girl. Who was she? With the long hair. <laughs> Patterson. That was rough. Mary Patterson. There are two women, the best of friends. Mary Patterson and Janet Brown. Janet is 28, Mary 18. Afterwards, Janet Brown tried to tell her story to anyone who would listen, but nobody did, until it was too late, and by then others were dead. It's faster, Mary! Hi, kicks! <laughs> yes! Hey, shut your gobs! There's people trying to sleep! Mary was a grand dancer. Her hair flew behind her. When we got drinking, we were loud and up for trouble. I'm seeing you, Yahoo! And that stone down! Never! I'm the queen of the cowgate! <laughs> Sometimes that led to the police cells overnight. It's cold in here. Can we get some blankets? If you please. Hey, you hearing me? Leave it, Mary. They'll just give us trouble. Oh, my teeth's chattering. It's probably a ploy, an old one. Getting locked up for the night would take them off the streets and help them stay warm. It did the former, but not the latter. Professor Lisa Rosner. Mary Patterson, what we know of her was that she was a young woman in Edinburgh, about a week before she met William Burke, she had just come from the Edinburgh Magdalen Asylum, which was a cross between a reform school and a rehab for girls who had been led astray. And what led astray means is, is not altogether clear. It probably was sexual, but again, it could simply have been that she was living with a, a boyfriend and they had broken up. We know from the records that she came from an Edinburgh family, so she did have family. We know that she had been employed at, as an Edinburgh watchmaker. 
And in the 19th century, people might have assumed that she had gone and seduced some member of the family. In the 21st century, we know it's very likely to have happened the other way because she was probably a maid of all work and any man of any age just regarded maids as, you know, fair game. But we don't know, you know, if she was seduced, if she had an affair with her boyfriend, if there was anything sexual, what we do know is that she was dismissed. And she had been living on the streets, which again doesn't mean that she was a streetwalker, but means she was living rough, before being allowed to enter the Magdalene Asylum. And this was entirely voluntary. And they only accepted women who they thought they could reform. Now, the problem was there wasn't very much to be reformed to. The best that she could hope for um, if she stayed her full three years at the Magdalene Asylum was to go back to being someone's maid. And this was a very serious problem in Edinburgh as elsewhere. There simply were no schools and very little work for young girls or for older girls. So they fell into whatever expedience they could. And there was very little relief for any of them. What we do know, again, to pick up Mary Patterson's story, is after 18 months in the Magdalene Asylum, she decided to leave, and within a week, she was dead. In the morning, sobered up, Janet Brown and Mary Patterson are turfed out of the police station and head up the city's Canongate in search of a drink. It's the last few hours of Mary's life. Good morning, ladies. Oh, here you, ladies. In the drinking dive, they meet a charming man. His name is William Burke. May I buy you a drink? May you? Posh and all. Aye, you can. We know from Janet Brown's own words, told later, that this is how she and Mary Patterson meet William Burke. Two whiskies for the ladies, Johnny. Come on, man. Join me. No, we're fine. Come on, Mary. He's buying Janet. He's got big pockets. We're not staying. Janet Brown senses something about William Burke. It's nothing definite. Just a feeling that something's wrong. But Mary's having none of it. And Janet is persuaded to join Burke and Mary at his table. Slander. Slander. Are you buying us breakfast? If you're good. I'm always good. <laughs> you buying again? Johnny, bring us a bottle. You were staring at me when I came in. Oh, it's not a sin to look at a pretty girl. Oh, hear him, Janet. He's got a tongue on him. <laughs> I have. And it can do magical things. <laughs> and so the morning drinking begins. William Burke sings and tells stories. He makes them laugh. They drink more. Soon, William Burke is cozying into her. It's her body he wants, but not in the way she thinks. Have you ever been in love? <laughs> Come on, Mary. Let's go. She's fine. Let her be. Yes, I'm fine. Have you ever had great love in your life? Ah, yes. I was in love forever, I thought. What happened? I lost her. 
And our baby she was having. Oh, that's dreadful. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, it's, it's all right. They live in here. In my heart. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean uh, to... You, all right, Mary. It's, it's all right. It is far from all right. The drunken morning descends into chaos. Mary is drunk within the hour. William Burke is not. They move on from the drinking den to a house where Janet Brown makes the crucial decision to leave them because she doesn't like the atmosphere. By early afternoon, Mary Patterson is dead at the hands of William Burke and William Hare. Her body will be carted up to Surgeon Square and sold for £10. Mary Patterson, the lost girl. I say that, but I am wrong. I have reduced her, as she is often reduced, to a single role, that of victim. But Mary Patterson brimmed with life. She had wit and a wildness. She was 18 years old. She could have had a long life if she hadn't, in a sliding doors moment, entered the drinking den that morning. Instead, she ends up on a slab, her hair cut off, ready for dissection by the esteemed Dr. Robert Knox. I have known, or thought I knew, the story of William Hare and William Burke all my adult life. One of the main aims of this series is to tell the stories of the people who truly matter, the victims, and not to portray them just as victims, as feckless individuals who fell into a vicious trap. But there is little concrete information about many of them. What there is is sketchy, as if someone has made a poor caricature on scrap paper and even that has faded over the centuries. As a journalist, it was ingrained in me. Get the facts. And it's a joy researching and gleaning what facts I can from the world of 1828 Edinburgh. But something is missing. The life of someone like Mary Patterson. As a writer for TV, film and radio, I know that when you work intensely on something, Imaginatively piecing together the whole from all the fragments, thoughts, instincts and intuition, sometimes things arrive for you, as if they've always been there. As if they have nothing to do with you. In early spring, I wake with a voice inside, insisting that I listen to a particular piece of classical music. I have learnt over the years to pay attention to that voice. So, I'm walking in Edinburgh, on a path through the trees in Inverleith Park, listening to Greek's Last Spring playing on my earbuds. In my mind, Mary Patterson presents herself to me. Simply, quietly, she takes centre stage, brushing her long hair. There's a meditation technique I've taught to potential writers at the Arvon Foundation and at Scotland's Screen Academy here in Edinburgh. 
how to face your character, the person that rises in your subconscious, and ask them what they want. I go home, close my eyes, and focus on Mary Patterson. There's that black hole in history into which I want to pour the colour of my imagination. I ask her to speak, to tell me. She does. I rewrite it. We work together. Dizzy trees, dizzy leaves and the world spins. Last spring I met a lad and he was bonny. Davies his name. Last spring I was happy. But I'll no see spring again. I'm in the dark day of dying. I want to see leaves of green again. Or feel the snail wind on my face. Taste the tang of salt from the sea in the morning. This is my last time and I didn't want it to be. Davy was my lad and he was bonny. We danced slow and soft. And I was his and he was mine. He kissed me. Soft and slow. But he went off for a soldier. I waited on him. But he never came back. And that morning, me and Janet and Mr. William Burke, we got drunk and sang and, oh, he could sing and he could laugh. Janet left us and me and him went back to his house. I felt dozy and wanted to lie down when there was this muffling blackness upon me. If my soul... Do you believe in souls? If it could rise and soar above the filth of that room, this is what it would see. Me there, and him lying down across my face, and the other one on my legs, and grim silence as they go about their work. Burke is smothering me, and I grapple with him and kick and struggle for my life, but they're too strong, and I die. I die choking, gasping for air, and I had a life to live. I wanted a baby to give it a better life than mine. I wanted to go home, but I was worth ten pounds to them. Ten pounds. I mind the light. At once, when it was night and dark, I was walking through a grand Edinburgh street when I heard music coming from a lighted hall. The side door was wedged open and I looked inside. Oh, beautiful ladies in bright coloured dresses danced with men in white shirts. They moved so fine to the music, gliding under the light, and the band played and the dance went round. It was beautiful. I'd like to have done that just one time. But a doorman saw me and pushed me away and slammed the door shut. Davy said, Will you marry me? Aye, I will. Will we have babies? Aye, we will. But he never came back. And I am a voice from the dead. I am Mary Patterson and people turn their heads when I go by. I have grace. Just because of where I was born doesn't make me less than you. Did I look down at me? I was. I am. What happened to me was wicked. 
Once upon a time, I looked in through a door and it was beautiful. The dancers in the light. That's what I remember. My name is Mary Patterson. You watched her at the inn, Mr Burke. I watched her, but not in the way you think. Business is business. You calculate. I watched and listened and waited for my moment. I knew she'd be easy if I got her away from that friend of hers. That was the job of the morning, and I did it. I'm good at it. It's not easy. It's hard work, killing people. Don't get clever. I'm telling you how it was. It takes its toll. You're thinking about it, planning. It takes over your life. You can't be in a room and you're thinking, well, they do. You sidle up and you get a sense of them. Is there a weak spot? What can I act on? Can I charm my way in or... Will they do anything for a drink? If they're drunk and senseless and I've pretended to drink with them, we're on the way. Money for the month. Job done. You picked on weak people. So you're saying. All right. We've got two you murdered. Disposed of. Tell me the others. Hi. All right. Are you ready? Short, stocky, charming and powerful, William Burke takes a breath, then begins. In the next episode, we give a voice to some of the other innocent victims and Margaret Hare takes her place in the witness box at the High Court with a baby in her arms. An Eye for a Killing is a BBC Scotland production written and dramatised by Colin MacDonald and presented by Jack Loudon, featuring the voices of James Bowl, Gavin Mitchell, Andy Clark, Helen Mackay, Simon Donaldson, Jimmy Chisholm, Stuart Macquarie, Nicola Roy. The producer is Bruce Young. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.